Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. How a 1970s seatbelt crash test and the animated movie Frozen helped potentially solve the 62-year-old Dyatlov Pass mystery. A fascinating correction to something I said yesterday about Langston Hughes and remembering Captain Sir Tom Moore. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. 62 years ago, almost to the day, a tragedy occurred in the Ural Mountains of Russia that left nine hikers dead and spurred decades of speculation. Now, before we get in too far, just a warning that parts of this will be a little gruesome with brief descriptions of some of the victims' injuries. So after years of conspiracy theories ranging from aliens and yetis to government cover-ups and military tests, we finally have the most comprehensive scientific evidence yet offering a possible explanation for the Dyatlov Pass incident. Quoting Wired, By the time the rescue team helicoptered to the remote Dyatlov Pass in late February 1959, the nine Russian adventurers, seven men and two women, all highly experienced cross-country skiers, had been dead for nearly a month. Nothing about the scene seemed right. The adventurer's tent had been sliced open from the inside, and in its husk lay rucksacks, neatly arranged boots, and a plate of sliced pork fat. The rescuers found the victims themselves over half a mile downslope from their camp, some of them barefoot and almost naked. The primary cause of death was hypothermia. Temperatures would have been well below zero degrees Fahrenheit the night they fled. But two of the deceased were missing their eyes, and another her tongue. Four had suffered severe trauma to their heads and chests, as if they'd been in a car crash. These were not injuries consistent with death by avalanche. End quote. Curiosity mounted not just because the incident was so atypical, but also because Soviet authorities, after declaring the cause a unknown natural force, remained tight-lipped. With so little information and a general distrust for a government with a track record of cover-ups, the incident was rife for conspiracy theories. And over the past decade, there's been an increasing amount of attention paid to the incident, including a feature film, TV specials in multiple countries, podcast series, and books, leading Russian authorities to re-examine the case in 2019, at which point they announced officially that the cause of death had been a natural phenomenon, most likely an avalanche or a snow slab. But there wasn't much scientific evidence backing up this claim, so it did little to temper people's curiosity. Here were some of the main complaints, quoting National Geographic. Many argued that the avalanche theory initially proposed in 1959 still didn't seem to stack up. The team's tent encampment was cut into the snow on a slope with an incline seemingly too mild to permit an avalanche. There was no snowfall on the night of February 1st that could have increased the weight of the snow burden on the slope and triggered a collapse. Most of the blunt force trauma-like injuries and some of the soft tissue damage were atypical of those caused by avalanches whose victims usually asphyxiate. And if an avalanche had occurred, why was there a gap of at least nine hours, according to forensic data, between the team members cutting the slope for their encampment and the eventual avalanche? End quote. Well, Johan Gom, head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at EPFL, and Alexander Putzrin, a geotechnical engineer at ETH Zurich, got to work a couple years ago to try to answer some of these questions. First, they figured out that the slope that the hikers pitched their tent on was actually steeper than initial reports in the pervading narrative claimed. 
Cover from snowfall made it seem more shallow, but it was actually almost a 30-degree incline, which is the minimum required to trigger an avalanche. Plus, quote, reports dating back to the site's initial investigation also describe an underlying snow layer on the mountain that didn't clump together, providing a weak, slippery base that a lot of overlying snow could easily slide over. The local topography played a trick on them, says Putzrin, end quote. But even if cutting into the snow to set up their tent could trigger an avalanche, shouldn't it have happened right when they set up camp, and not nine hours later, as forensic evidence suggests? Gohm and Putzerin explain this with a lesser-known type of avalanche called a delayed slab avalanche. Wired explains the concept, quote, When the year's first snow falls, it comes in contact with ground that's still relatively warm, but the air temperature has fallen dramatically, creating a temperature gradient that builds a porous, crystalline material known as the weak layer that's 80% air. On top of this, more snow falls, forming a denser slab. Think of it like a parking garage, with the weak layer being the parking spaces and the sparse pillars, lots of airy space. The solid ceiling above is the slab. Now, if you somehow disturb that weak layer, knocking out those pillars, it'll collapse, releasing the slab above it as an avalanche, end quote. But even then, the delay still seems too long. What it may have needed is the weight and force of additional snow, but we know there was no snowfall that night. However, there was wind. Specifically, catabatic winds, which are drainage winds carrying high-density air down a slope. This would have brought large amounts of snow from higher up down to the campsite, triggering the final factor needed to release a delayed slab avalanche. Using analytic models and computer simulations, Gum and Putzrin found the avalanche was probably pretty small, about 16 feet long or around the size of an SUV. And the small size would account for the lack of evidence of an avalanche when rescuers arrived, but still didn't exactly explain the horrendous scale of injuries. To run simulations on the effects of snow, avalanches, and general blunt trauma on human bodies, Gum and Putzrin turned to a couple of unusual sources the animated film Frozen, and a 1970s report from experiments conducted by General Motors on a hundred cadavers. Let's start with the lighter Frozen piece first. When Gomes saw Frozen, he, as a snow simulation expert, was fascinated by just how well the animators depicted the movement of snow. And after reaching out, he flew to Hollywood to meet with the animators, and ended up going back home with the animation code that they used for the snow effects in the movie, which he later adapted to run in his avalanche simulator. And though this code helped enormously in simulating the effects of avalanches on the body, Goman Putzrin still needed to be able to plug in some values to get a real idea of the scale of impact. Enter GM's Cadavers. Basically, back in the 70s, GM broke the ribs of 100 cadavers by hitting them all with different types of weights at different velocities. Now, it's not quite as dark as it sounds. Using cadavers in the place of dummies was fairly commonplace, and it was all in the name of creating better safety designs and guidelines to prevent injuries in car crashes. And in fact, this particular study played an integral role in enhancing the safety of seatbelts. But here's where the study really came in handy for the Dyatlov Pass study. Quoting National Geographic, Some of the cadavers used in the GM tests were braced with rigid supports, while others weren't, a variable which ended up being serendipitous for Putzrin and Gom. 
Back on the slopes of Kolat Siakl, the team members had placed their bedding atop their skis. This meant that the avalanche, which hit them as they slept, struck an unusually rigid target, and that the GM cadaver experiments from the 1970s could be used to calibrate their impact models with remarkable precision. End quote. And in that unique position on an atypically rigid structure, the impact of a small SUV-sized avalanche could absolutely have outsized impacts, plausibly causing the types of injuries described in the initial investigation. It wouldn't have been immediately fatal, allowing the hikers to flee or be carried away from the tent by their campmates to a hopeful source of safety in a tree line down the slope. Some other parts of the mystery still remain, but the most common explanations for them do fit in with this theory. There was traces of radioactivity found on the hikers' bodies, but that could have come from their lanterns. As for some of the more unusual injuries, that could have been from scavenging animals picking at soft tissue after the hikers had succumbed to death. And there's a number of explanations for the various stages of undress that they were found in, including paradoxical undressing, which often happens in the cases of fatal hypothermia. But as for Gome and Putzrin's findings, other scientists and mountaineers not involved in the study say that all of these factors would have had to be the perfect, tragic storm, but that technically it would all be possible. And apart from satiating the curiosity of people from all around the world, insight like this study can provide some solace and respect for the legacy of these hikers. Quoting National Geographic, some in Russia have voiced the opinion that these hikers had taken stupid or unnecessary risks that ultimately killed them. This kind of tarnishes their legacy, says Putzrin, whose study shows that this freak avalanche would have surprised mountaineering experts with a lifetime of experience, end quote. And as Putzrin additionally told National Geographic, quote, This isn't just a mystery, this is a story of courage and friendship, end quote. Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Phone plan streams in standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. So yesterday, I played a clip of Langston Hughes reading one of his poems in honor of the late poet's birthday. Only, I told you the wrong year of his birth. I said he would have been 119 yesterday, but in fact, he would have been 120. Shout out to my friend Tom for correcting me on this, but I have to say, this wasn't my usual typo kind of mistake. Up until a few years ago, the official birth date on record for Langston Hughes was 1902. It's even the date listed on the mosaic cosmogram beneath which his ashes are interred in the atrium of the New York Public Library's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. But it turns out, he was actually born a year earlier. Or at least, researchers are now pretty sure that he was. It all started with a casual archive search by poet Eric McHenry, who teaches at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas, not too far from Hughes' birth town of Joplin, Missouri. He was going through old newspapers for information about his ancestors and local figures from history when he found a newspaper headline that read, quote, "'Little Langston Hughes has been quite ill for the past two weeks. He is improving.'" End quote. The most remarkable part of that discovery, though, the newspaper was from December of 1901, 
a few months before Hughes was allegedly born. To verify this was indeed the poet, Langston Hughes, McHenry searched for more newspaper evidence, finding several other mentions of a young Langston Hughes in the year before he was supposed to be born, and then he got in touch with some Langston Hughes scholars. The scholars did their own further research and confirmed that his true birth year does indeed seem to have been 1901, the same date just a year earlier. Now, it's tough to exactly verify because Missouri law at the time of his birth did not require birth to be recorded, but his distinguished family frequently made the society pages of the local newspaper The Plain Dealer, so researchers have over a dozen mentions of Hughes as a young child, including, quote, one item from 1907 which reported that he had injured himself falling into a rose bush. A week later, another noted he was better, end quote. And it seems like the incorrect birth year was always a part of his personal narrative. McHenry speculates that Hughes's mom may have waited to enroll him in school until he was a year older, especially because she chose to send him to the white elementary school and perhaps thought that a year of maturation would maybe help him cope better with the inevitable racism. Whatever the reason, it seems we now have a more accurate age for the writer, but scholars and archivists are largely unbothered. It's interesting, but doesn't change much about his work. It's more interesting as an archival footnote than anything else. As Kevin Young, the director of New York Public Library's Schomburg Center, told the New York Times, quote, I keep thinking about how the archive is still alive. We're still learning things about people we already know a lot about. End quote. Ending with a bit of sad news today, Captain Sir Tom Moore, who made headlines last year for raising over 32 million pounds for the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, has died following complications with pneumonia and COVID-19. I covered the vast accomplishments of Captain Sir Tom Moore on this show last May, link in the show notes if you want to listen. The show also includes a deep dive into the lore of Chuck E. Cheese, so, you know, that could be a good pick-me-up if today's show has been too much of a bummer. But in brief, when lockdown started, Captain Sir Tom Moore, back then just Captain Tom Moore, set a goal of walking 100 laps around his garden before his 100th birthday. His daughter decided to turn the challenge into a fundraiser for the UK's National Health Service, and within a couple of weeks, it had completely snowballed. In addition to raising the aforementioned £32 million, Captain Sir Tom Moore became a household name. He started receiving birthday cards and gifts from around the country, signed book deals for a memoir and picture book, started a foundation to support pandemic relief efforts and to help support lonely and grieving individuals, and he even received a knighthood from the Queen. It was an unbelievable and inspiring final year at the end of an already full life for the World War II veteran. And if you want a good cry, you can watch the music video for the song that Captain Sir Tom Moore recorded with Michael Ball and a chorus of NHS workers last summer. It's a cover of You'll Never Walk Alone from the musical Carousel, which became a UK number one and the fastest selling song of 2020 in the UK. Link to watch that video is in the show notes. (laughs) 
So there ended up being a lot of themes of death in today's episode, which I apologize for. If you need a mood booster, I would recommend heading on over to Kotki.org, where Jason shared a homemade version of The Princess Bride, produced by Jason Reitman for Quibi, but now available in full on YouTube, and starring Fred Savage, Carrie Elwes, John Hamm, Retta, Penelope Cruz, John Cho, Taika Waititi, Charlize Theron, Keegan-Michael Key, Jack Black, Shaquille O'Neal, Carl Reiner, and much more more. Like, basically everyone ever is in this, and all of them filmed it on their own phones, at home, with multiple actors playing the same roles. It is wild. So give it a watch, link is in the show notes, and I hope that you have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.